If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Isabella Stewart Gardner. She'll be answering our call in December of 1910 at the age of 70 years old. As a young girl inspired by Italian architecture, she had a vision to build a house museum that rivaled the palaces in Venice. She was only missing a couple things. Of course, the money to do it and the expertise to acquire these nearly priceless artifacts. Yet, being a bold woman that would not be deterred easily, she did exactly that. Once she had created this Venetian palace to house these masterpieces that she'd collected over 25 years, she wrote an ironclad will preventing any changes to the museum. It would remain exactly as it was forever. As you walk through this museum, you'll feel how she designed each room to be its own thought-provoking experience. It's like nothing you've ever seen. Yet, early in the morning, the night after St. Patrick's Day in 1990, two men dressed as police knocked on the door. The guard let them in, and the next 81 minutes resulted in the clumsiest, most expensive, unsolved art heist in history. All the pieces that were stolen that evening are still missing, including Vermeer's The Concert, worth an estimated $200 million, and my favorite, Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, valued at approximately $100 million. As required by the terms of the will, preventing changes, those empty frames still hang on the walls of the museum, adding to the mystery and the enigma that was Isabella Stewart Gardner. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and Red Sox fans everywhere, I give you Isabella Stewart Gardner. Hello, is that you, Mrs. Gardner? Yes, it is I. Mrs. Gardner, I am so excited to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone. It allows us to speak as if you and I were sitting in the Dutch room of your home drinking a cup of tea together. And it also allows me to share a record of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand this is a strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? No, not at the moment, but you have me most intrigued. Well, considering the kind of life that you've lived and all of the traveling that you've done and all the experiences that you have and the pace that you live your life, to intrigue you is an accomplishment on my end for sure. And I want to tell you, I guess one of the first things that I wanted to mention to you is I've been to your home museum uh, a couple of different times. And I, and I live a long ways from there, and I went out of my way to go there because it is one of the most exquisite places I have ever visited, and I have traveled the world. And I'll have you know that in our time all these years later, it is probably in better shape than it has ever been. Well, that is absolutely wonderful to hear. I am so gratified to hear that you appreciate my house museum. I, I've seen 
so many different museums. Whenever we travel into Europe, and we were in Turkey a couple of years ago, and I've seen museums throughout the world, and I will tell you that there is one place in France, and there is your museum, and by far these are my favorites. There's just nothing like it. And I got to tell you, as I was doing a little research about you, I heard a story that before you actually built this beautiful structure, that you went to get permission, or not permission, but guidance from the Pope. Is that true? Yes, it it is. It is true that I was hesitant. It was my husband Jack's idea to build a house museum from the ground up. But I was hesitant. Just the time and the vision and all the elements that need to come together. I wish to get a divine sign, if you will. And so I gave it great thought. And then it occurred to me, who on earth has greater moral latitude than the Pope? Now, yes, I mean his holiness at the Vatican. So it was one holiday about nearly two decades ago, when Jack and I were in Europe, we were staying with his cousin, Thomas Jefferson Coolidge, who at that time was an ambassador in Paris. And through his circle of diplomatic means, we were able to obtain an invitation. And, well, that day that we were that we came to the Vatican, my husband was ushered into a small antechamber. But I was led down corridor after corridor in the labyrinth of this most ornate dwelling. And suddenly the doors flung open and there at the opposite end of the room was his holiness. The Pope beckoned for me to come forward and said in faltering English, are you Catholic? And I quickly said, yes, American Catholic. Now, he was puzzled by that, I could see. So I quickly explained, well, as compared to Roman Catholic, he still did not understand. So then I quickly added that I was a member of the Church of the Advent High Anglican in Boston's Back Bay. I am not sure if His Holiness understood at that point even what I was referring to, but he asked again in faltering English, what was my concern? And so I said, quite simply, should we stay with the old or build anew? The Pope then invited my husband and I to attend a special service the following day. Two other couples were present, and it was during that service that it became clear to me that the way forward for my house museum was to build anew. What was the logic of going to the Pope? Was it because Christ was a carpenter and you thought maybe he had passed some information to him? Well, Tony, I must say that it was more that it's the moral authority that the Pope exerts across the globe that I felt was compelling reason to seek his approval, if you will. I see. Well, I'll tell you what, you keep some high company, that is for sure. And I heard a story. <laughs> now, I don't know if this is true, but I heard that you 
Again, this may be a total fabrication. You don't, Anybody will write anything. I heard that at some point you got kicked out of the Vatican for lighting up a cigarette. Is that true? Oh, my goodness. I must say how people love to fabricate tales. But then again, I also say never spoil a good story by telling the truth. So are you not going to tell me if that was true or not? Correct. Okay. <laughs> so when you go to the Pope and you ask him, should you stay with the old or should you go with the new, I'm assuming what you're talking about is you're talking about the this house on Beacon Street that you lived on and whether or not this incredible art collection that you were building should be displayed in Beacon Street or if it should be displayed where it is right now. Is that what you were asking? Is that what you meant by that? Yes, that is correct. You see, for the quarter of a century that my husband and I collected works of art from around the world, it was a shared passion. I had kept in my mind's eye a particular house museum that I had toured as a young schoolgirl in Paris following my studies there. My parents gave me a, a grand tour of Europe. And when we were in Milan, we toured a small house museum called the Palazzo Pelosi. And it was there that I was taken with this dream, this vision, if you will, that if I were to ever have the means that I wish to build a house museum of my own in the city in which I would dwell. So you seemed like you had a, a pretty good youth. I mean, your parents are traveling around the world, Tony. That was a, a grand tour of Europe. Uh, beyond that, my parents did not really travel be, to, beyond Europe. Uh, this was a, a, like a finishing tour, if you shall say. Were your parents wealthy? Well, my father was considered new money. He had inherited some from his father and began importing textiles. And I recall large crates arriving at our Manhattan residence in lower Manhattan. And I would help my father to unpack these treasures of laces and damasks and brocades, very fine textiles, which filled my imagination with the sense of color and texture. And in time, my father wished to improve his status further by becoming involved with copper and the smelting of copper. Dirty business. Where, well, it was very lucrative because the, at that point in time, there were not as many of these boundary businesses in this country. You know, when you talk about your dad, he sounds like a really hardworking guy and when I think about you being a, a young child and having seen some of these treasures in Europe, and then here your dad is getting these crates, and they arrive, and you probably are sitting there. You just can't even wait to open them up mm. and see what's in there. And it kind of looks like to me that maybe this is something that inspired you to go on this lifetime worldwide treasure hunt. That's kind of what it looks like. And I wonder if that was the moment that inspired all of it, because you just couldn't wait to find or open the next thing that you found. Well, it, it is interesting that you say that, Tony, because I absolutely do 
ascribe that this early unpacking of crates with my father as being the first step forward in the unfolding of my life's vision, my life's work. And I will also say that a bit later, as the wife of Jack Gardner, once we, I moved to Boston, was that Charles Eliot Norton exerted great influence as a mentor because he encouraged me to begin collecting. First, it was rare books and manuscripts, furniture, jewelry, of course. And my dear husband would often gift me pearls from Shreve, Crump, and Lowe. He also, Mr. Norton, invited me to a circle of intellectuals. Some were undergraduates as well as graduate students at Harvard, but it was also open to the public. And Mr. Norton extended a personal invitation to me to attend these history of art lectures that he was conducting. This is obviously an interesting group of people to spend time with, for sure. It surprises me that kind of invitation would come your way in your time. Would it be common for women in your time to be involved with these men at Harvard and to even have discussions about collecting antiquities? Well, another very interesting question. No, I was one of the only women who was invited to join that circle of art history at Harvard. I must say, I was deeply touched and gratified by this invitation. I had a, a personal connection with Mr. Norton, who had also suffered some family tragedies, and we were aware of each other's grief. That was another commonality that we shared. Your personality, when people write about it, when they talk about it, it is just so high above the way that everybody else seems to live. It's just you seem like you have never-ending energy and you get things done when other people can't, especially as a woman in your time, which is just phenomenal. If you were a man with every advantage, what you'd accomplish would have seemed impossible. And yet you did it with some other obstacles. And I guess I'm wondering, what is it in you that Mr. Norton saw that made him act this way and treat you this way? Was there some something that happened that led him to believe that you were special in some way? That is a very interesting question. What I believe, as I reflect on my life looking back, is that there was a period in the 1880s across Boston that, especially in the area I was living on Beacon Street in Boston's Back Bay, where there was interest in looking to the east rather than jump to the West, be inspired by European art, Bostonians in particular began looking to Japan and the influence of Japanese art. And there were a number of salons in the various drawing rooms and parlors along Beacon Street. And my husband and I were part of this circle. So we began a salon series often with music, but we also, I am most proud to say, hosted one of the first lectures on Japan, the sister city, Boston-Tokyo connection. It was very well attended that afternoon, and it was the inspiration for 
Charlie Longfellow, the son of the poet on Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was so inspired by what he heard that day at our salon that rather than pursue his studies after graduating from Harvard Medical School, he instead traveled with a friend to Tokyo where they became infused with the Japanese culture. When you say the word salon, can you define that for somebody that might not know exactly what you mean? Well, Tony, I believe each of the salons was unique, depending on the household. In our salon at 152 Beacon Street, it was a rather large room, rather sparsely furnished, with settees, or single seats, along the wall which created an open circle, if you will, in which there would be a small table to the front of the room with a glass of water and perhaps a vase with a flower in it, in which the person giving the presentation would speak. As you were just describing this room, I picture several of the rooms in the museum looking just like this. Your museum is, it's so incredible in so many ways, but at the same time you walk in and you feel comfortable, a place where you could sit down and talk with a group of people in a couple chairs and just as easily somebody could stand at the front of the room and get a lecture like this. So am I, is my thinking correct? Yes, that is very true, Tony. It is. So, and it was an inspiration for many people. Yes. So with the, when you were talking about the, uh, the Japanese art, and looking to the east. I guess, it, did you find that as you would travel that you would make a connection to all the places that you would travel like this? Well, most certainly. I would say that it was the trip that Jack and I took in the mid-80s that really lit a torch, if you will, in my desire to collect Asian art. Jack and I took a train from a Pullman car from Boston to San Francisco, and then we boarded a ship bound for Tokyo. It was there that we reconnected with Charlie Longfellow and his friend. They donned Japanese garb. They spoke the Japanese language fluently. They also became familiar with the sword form of martial arts. And they were the most perfect hosts. From there, we continued. From Tokyo, we continued sailing south until we got to Phnom Penh. And while on ship, we made connection with two, I believe they were diplomats in training, two young Frenchmen who were going to none other than Cambodia. And they persuaded Jack and I to join them on a trek inland to Angkor Wat. Now, that was a most arduous trek, if you can imagine. We were transported by buffalo and bullock cart deep into the interior of the jungle. And it was there, once we arrived, that I felt that I had arrived at a most unearthly scene with these tall temples made of stone, with banyan trees and roots and flowers of every sort in a lush jungle. It is difficult 
to describe beyond that. But we continued on from our jungle trek in Phnom Penh into India. We tra- traversed the entire subcontinent by ship. In every port, we would venture across the town and view temples, places of worship. I considered this a, a, a very spiritual journey in, in many ways because it, it brought together the realization that the divine is in all of us. That spark of divine life and light radiates from each of us, no matter what we believe. I would suspect that being in a place like India is a place where you get that feeling very strongly. Yes, indeed, Tony. There were many religions that I can't even recall all their names. The fact that we saw these beautiful temples, it was clear that people were giving praise and recognition to the divine that governs us all. In our time, when we imagine people of your time, we picture women in dresses. Now, that is very different now. Women dress like men, men dress like women. It's all over the board right now. But in your time, we picture women in dresses. And yet I know that from a little bit of of study of you that you can be a little rough and tumble when you need to be. So I picture you hiking through the jungle wearing a dress but acting more like a man. Is that what what it would have looked like? It is true that I wore a dress, a long dress, on all my travels. I was never taken by that style that had a brief popularity in my day of bloomers, very brief. I never wore bloomers. I wore a long dress, Tony. Okay. So when you were talking about Japan, I understand that there was a person that was an important part of your life, and I think his name was Akukura Kakuzo. Did you meet him in Japan, or is he even Japanese? Oh, yes. Mr. Okakura Kakuzo is indeed Japanese. But to answer your question, no, Jack and I did not meet him initially in Japan, but we met him. Well, excuse me, I met him, Mr. Kakuzo, when he came to pay a call at my Fenway Court. Mr. Kakuzo came with a letter of introduction from Mr. Fenloza, who was part of that Japanese circle. There was contact between Boston and Tokyo, as I said, and Mr. Fenloza was a catalyst for building that cultural bridge. So when Mr. Kakuzo appeared at my front door with this letter of introduction from Mr. Fenloza, I was most intrigued. Mr. Kakuzo was very fluent in the English language. He was bilingual, shall we say. And I was immediately drawn to his sense of aesthetics. I realized that Mr. Kakuzo has great potential. And so I personally introduced him to the board at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, after which he obtained a commission to advise them on their East Asian collection. In the same regard, Mr. Kukuzo has been advising me on how to best arrange and assemble my collection of East Asian artifacts. 
And so I am dedicating one of my rooms at Fenway Court to be the Asian room, though I am not certain if I shall ever open the Asian room to the public. Why would you make it and not open it? Many reasons, Tony, many reasons. I will add, Tony, that word has been circulating across Boston that, well, even the mayor, Mr. Michael Curley, has commented that Mrs. Gardner has been known to be communing with the spirits in her Asian room. That is all I can divulge at this time. I see what you're saying. Do you have some strong beliefs in mysticism or spirituality or is something you like to share on that? I do not really wish to divulge my particular beliefs. I believe that what each person believes is a personal fact. So rather than to discuss it in further detail, I think it is up to each person to make their own connection with their higher self and the divine. Are there other rooms in your house museum that are just yours? Oh, most definitely. The fourth floor is my private residence. And from time to time, I have been known to invite friends and close family up for tea. Oh, but the public never makes it to the fourth floor. Correct. Correct. My house museum is located on the first three floors of Fenway Court. Well, now you've just given me one of my goals in life, and that is to figure out how to get to the fourth floor at some point. Well, perhaps I I may invite you for a cup of tea after this conversation. Oh, if there was a way to do that, I would take that invitation for sure. You can count on that. Let's go back to Mr. Kakuzo for a second. Obviously, you had a connection with him, and, and he had a connection with you. What kind of person was he? Was he just a, an art historian? Is there some, something about him or some story that could kind of give us an idea of what kind of person he was? Well, it is very funny that you asked that question. But, and I will say that one of my most favorite episodes with Mr. Cucuzzo, and there have been many in the last five years that we have become fast friends, is that soon after he appeared at my doorstep with his letter of introduction for Mr. Fenloza, I took it upon myself to introduce him to the necessary people at the Museum of Fine Arts. So as we were walking past Symphony Hall, rounding the corner onto Huntington Avenue, it was a warm spring day. So I had my parasol up to protect us from the warm rays of the sun. We were walking arm in arm when suddenly a very rude man accosted us, demanding to know what kind of knees was Mr. Kakuzo. Was he Japanese? Chinese, or Javanese. I was aghast by such rudeness. But Mr. Kakuzo drew himself up to full height and said in impeccable English, I am a Japanese gentleman. What kind of keys are you? A monkey, a donkey, or a Yankee? And I said, touche, that is the kind of man for me. It was at that moment that we became fast friends. 
Oh, I like him. This guy is on his toes. Oh, yes. So when I say that he speaks impeccable English, that is what I mean. He was schooled at a very early age while living in Tokyo of the English language. And Mr. Kokuzo sees himself as a cultural ambassador to bring together the cultures of East and West. And just last year, he has published a seminal work called The Book of Tea. In that book, Mr. Kukuzo illustrates the various components of altering our senses through art, music, and flower. I also have enlisted Mr. Kukuzo to host several ceremonial teas at Fenway Court in which we contemplate a sense of our higher self and a sense of developing our aesthetics. It sounds like you and this man, when you met, you would have been inseparable. Your interests are so aligned, it appears. Well, in many ways they are. And Mr. Kukuzo has become uh, a rather, I won't say constant, but a frequent companion. I also am quite friendly with a, a circle of people, two decades my junior, who reside on Eastern Point in Gloucester. And they host, much like myself, as I do at Fenway Court, they do at their home along the high tide mark of Eastern Point Boulevard in Gloucester. And Mr. Cocuso has been spotted to accompany me on a numerous occasions there, at, particularly at the home of Mr. Harry Sleeper, whose residence, I believe, will also become a house museum. His will be called Beauport. Harry also says that he was first inspired by my Fenway Court. Did you say, is his last name Sleeper? Yes, Mr. Sleeper. And he is from good stock. His grandfather was very prominent in the Civil War. He was a doctor during the Civil War. I want to talk a little bit about the museum, because you clearly had this picture of what you wanted that to look like, and it is a grand picture that you had in your head that you were able to turn into block and stone and everything that it takes to make that building. If you just look at your overall picture, if you could put your goal in, in, in a couple sentences or a couple thoughts, what was your ultimate goal before you started building it? My goodness, very few people have asked me that question, Tony. My goal in developing Fenway Court was to assemble and arrange the works of art that my husband and I had collected from throughout the world, not in any particular chronological or any particular category other than to heighten one's senses. So it was more that I wished for each person, each visitor of my house museum, to take what would uplift their spirit and give them a sense of how to be a better person in this world. So it was not any particular design, but more a compilation of how these objects would be arranged in a new way 
to alter our perception and our sensibilities? That is a fascinating answer. As I said, I've done quite a bit of traveling like you, and there are two places that I've walked into in my life where I had the feeling where I felt when I walked into your museum. One of them was the Chapel of Princes where the Medici were buried in Florence. Mm -hmm. And then the other is your museum. When you walk in your museum, you feel something. You feel like something is grabbing you and pulling you. And it's just this overwhelming sensation of what is happening? What am I feeling? And as you go from room to room, it's not like a typical museum where, you know, there's statues and then more statues and then more statues. You go to one room, and one room is like a hallway, and that's part of the museum. And then the next room is this big open room with tables and chairs and tapestries and statues. And then you go to the next room, and it's really small and quaint and quiet. And then the next one, I mean, it's... Yes, Tony, I appreciate your words because you have experienced what was my ultimate goal in designing and developing this house museum. Thank you. It seems that this collection, and we're going to talk about a little bit how you came a, about collecting all of these pieces, but it seems that a collection that you have that is so valuable that it would be prone to some sort of theft, that this would certainly bring people that were interested in the works, but might also pull some people towards it that would think maybe, hey, I could put that in my pocket and maybe sell that for a significant amount of money. In your time, what were you doing to prevent theft, to protect your work? Another interesting question, but one that is very difficult, as you can imagine. All I can say is that I live on the fourth floor, and that is a, a measure of just being part of my house museum, and I have several dogs. Other than that, I really do not wish to even contemplate a disaster of what you just described. Well, hopefully nothing like that ever happens because this collection that you have is fantastic. Speaking of dogs, by the way, did you have animals on the property besides the dogs? I heard one time that there was a lion on the grounds at some point. Is that true? <laughs> well, that's, again, you know those stories that I say that people love to discuss, and I have often appeared in the newspaper's town topics about my fascination with lions. Well, it is true that I appreciate lions. I appreciate most animals. And to that story, there was a small circus that was traveling through Boston that had a large lion, actually two. But I was so enamored of this creature that I asked if I might take him for a walk. And of course, you know that a photographer snapped us. And before long, there were cartoons and caricatures of me walking Rex the lion along the Boston Garden. Well, this lion story does not surprise me at all. And having animals in or around the building doesn't surprise me. And, I, and I'll tell you why it doesn't. One of your very close, I, I suppose, friends, Bernard Berenson, there was a quote that he had said about you, and he said that she lives at a rate and intensity with a reality that makes other lives seem pale, thin, and shadowy. And so for you to be walking around with a lion or bears or, I don't know, a mongoose, 
I suppose none of that would surprise me. Let's go back, though. You married Jack when you were 20 years old. And it seems like you and Jack maybe had a, a very a good relationship. And that's when you guys were on Beacon Street. Was Beacon Street a house that you built together, or was it a house that Jack had? No. Beacon Street was a wedding present from my dear father. So Jack and I were married in Manhattan, and then I moved to Boston shortly thereafter to reside in the city in which my husband lived. Now, my father decided and had agreed to gift us a home that needed to be built. So at that point in time, 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, the Back Bay of Boston was still under construction. It, there was landfill. They were bringing in carts of soil from the hills of Needham to fill the land before there could be any construction of dwellings. And during that time, Jack and I stayed at his parents' home at Green Hill initially. But then it became clear that we needed our own residence. So we took up lodging in one of the hotels in downtown Boston. But it took nearly the first year of our marriage for this home to actually be built. And once we moved in, we were at 152 Beacon Street until the turn of the century. Though I will add that in the 1870s, there was another family tragedy in which Jack's brother Joseph, who was already a widower, took his own life. And in his last will and testament, he named my husband and I to be the legal guardians of his three sons. So Jack and I took on the care of our nephews, Joseph Jr., 14, Amory, 12, and Augustus, or Gussie, who just turned 10. And when our nephews came to live with us, it became clear that we needed an expanded residence for our suddenly enlarged nest. So when the property next door to us at 152 became vacant, I encouraged Jack to procure it as well so that we had an expanded residence of 150, 152 Beacon Street while our nephews were at home with us. I must say that the floors and the doors did not very smoothly adjoin with the two residences, but it was a wonderful arrangement having the enlarged space for our sudden nest of five gardeners on Beacon Street. Yeah, your family more than doubled o uh, overnight. So you're living on Beacon Street, and you now have three children that you have to take care of, and you need more room, so you built on to the house. The fact that you now had this bigger family, was that part of the reason for moving on oh. and building the new home? Yes, definitely it was. But then within the next decade, each of our nephews had graduated from Harvard with honors, and our home was once again an empty nest. Uh -huh. So that is when I began to conceive of how and where I would make the necessary adjustments to developing a house museum. It's fascinating that here you are, you're 35 years old, and you now have these three kids that you need to take care of. And yet, when you were trying to have children with Jack... That didn't go so smoothly, did it? 
No, it was a source of great sadness, Tony. We did. We had one son, John Lowell Gardner III, who uh, was a beautiful baby and very smart. But just before his second birthday, he caught a nasty cold. And it seemed that nothing that I did could help that cold. And it quickly developed into pneumonia. And just before his second birthday, our baby Jack asked from this life. Or kid. Yes. And I tried soon after I conceived, but I had a miscarriage. And then our family doctor advised Jack and I that we should not even try again. And that led to a, a serious depression. I, I, I took to bed myself in a state that was best diagnosed as a nervous breakdown. And our family doctor tried every modern remedy and cure, but nothing seemed to work until our dear doctor advised Jack that the only hope left was to give me a complete change of scenery. And so we made plans to travel to Europe. And it was there that I reconnected with that dream, that vision that I had as a young school girl when visiting the Palazzo Pelosi in Milan, that I could take on this sense of a mission of building a house museum. Yeah, it's obviously a terrible thing for anybody to have to go through. You're, you're, you're newly married, you have this, this beautiful son, and then he dies so young, and then you have the miscarriage and find out that you can't have more children. And yet, you look at this tragedy that you worked your way through, and people would just not see that unless they were aware of it. They look at your life from a distance here in, in our time, and they just see this intelligent, exciting, full-of-life woman traveling the world. And yet, right in the middle of your life, where maybe you could have been the happiest time, there's this moment that could have ended it all. I mean, you're at the peak of depression. It could have been... If, had you never gotten out of that, there would have been no beautiful collection of art that has lasted for hundreds of years and all the people that you've influenced. And people think that your life is so much easier because you have money, and yet we all go through these difficult things. And it's yeah. just a great lesson, I guess, to, to persevere because here you are at the, you know, when the museum opened, I think it, if I got my dates right, I think it opened in 1903, and you give this gift to the world, and geez, you're 63 years old and in the prime of your life accomplishing and doing amazing things. I appreciate your words and your insight into my situation. I will say, though, that there are relics scattered throughout my house of the image of Madonna and child that I have always held very dear to my heart. So that is a trace of my personal journey, and that is why I have embraced the divine in, in the way that I have, because another symbol, if you will, that I have ascribed to is the image of the phoenix, which is the symbol of transformation. And mm -hmm. for the grand opening of Fenway Court, I designed a wreath that has the shield of a phoenix rising from the ashes. And I believe that is the imperative for each of us to be able to dig deep within ourselves while still connecting with the divine to overcome obstacles and hardships during our life and to leave this world a better place. Well, you definitely are. I mean, the Phoenix is a great representation 
uh, of your life, that is for sure. So let me see if I got this right. So here you are on Beacon Street. We have these terrible things that happened, and now you have these three children. And But prior to these three children, that was when you and Jack started traveling a lot and started most of your collecting. Is my timing right? Yes, that is true. So the collecting was concurrent with the raising of the next nephews. We traveled to Europe just about every other year. And there was one particular place that we were drawn to again and again, and that was Venice. It was one of the palazzos on the Grand Canal, the Palazzo Barbaro, in which relatives of Jack's, the Curtises, would rent this out. And it was a large palace. And that became the focal point for families and friends to gather. And we were entranced by Venice, the sunrise and the sunset. I always made a mental note of how the sun would reflect off the water at different times of the day. And taking a Vaporetto up and down the canal, we would also tour cathedrals and museums and stop for gelato and cappuccino along the way. And it was there during our stay at the Barbaro that I began to envision how I wished to construct my house museum. So that would be the true inspiration was the Palazzo Barbaro. When I was in Venice, I learned that it was actually a, a law of the country that uh, you had mentioned stopping for gelato. You have to stop for gelato as often as you can when you're in all of Italy. It's a law now. <laughs> that is good to hear that, yeah. that they are in hope that they enforce that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. They enforce it very well by having gelato shots everywhere. Venice is like nothing else in the world, as you're describing. And I, I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, maybe I'm not wondering this, it seems very obvious, but when you walk into the court area in the center of your museum on Fenway, I mean, it feels like you're in Venice. And so that is, that's oh. what you saw the whole time you were building that. Yes, absolutely, Tony. I wish to create a similar shade on the walls of my courtyard, which were turned inside. Most courtyards in Italy, of course, are on the exterior of the building, but due to our temperate winter climate in Boston, I had to turn the walls of the courtyard to face inside, and I wished to stuckle them in the Italian style. I even had workmen imported from Italy who could not speak a word of English just to further entice public curiosity. But I held each of those workmen to the task. They did not know how to stucco in the Italian style. So I had to get up on the ladder myself to show them how to do it properly. And I mixed the paints, the red and white that made a certain hue of pink to resemble the Venetian sunset. So in the building of Fenway, you're participating in the stuccoing, you're climbing on the ladder and picking up nails and involved in it at that level? As much as I possibly could, because I had a vision of which I wished to ascribe. So th this vision was constant for me, and I sought to enforce it 
In this episode, she had mentioned the Asian Room. It was a place that the public was never allowed to go. That area is now used for conservation. The fourth floor that used to be her residence is now offices for the people that work there. Although she probably didn't want to make these changes, there was no way around it, especially after the theft. In the next episode, you're going to hear why she was called the Serpent of Muddy River. She's going to talk about how she collected these pieces using buyers from around the world. She'll discuss some of her favorite pieces, including one of the most valuable by Titian, that for some reason the thieves just ignored, called the Rape of Europa. By the way, if you've never visited this museum, go to the web and search Isabella Stewart Gardner Courtyard. It really is something special. I'm glad you're enjoying this podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe now, and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with part two of Isabella Stewart Gardner.